Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olay Eaton. The story behind John Kennedy Toole's A Confederacy of Dunces is one of the most interesting in American literary history. Despite Toole's repeated efforts to gain the attention of publishers, the novel that made him famous wasn't published until 12 years after his death. Today I'm talking with Corey McLaughlin about his new book entitled Butterfly and the Typewriter, The Short Tragic Life of John Kennedy Toole and the Remarkable Story of A Confederacy of Dunces. Hi, Corey. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a graduate of University of Virginia, and I teach English at Germana Community College in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And um, I'm a first-time biographer with a biography of John Kennedy Tool. worked on the book for uh, a little over six years, I guess. And, um, yeah, I guess that's that's, that's uh, my initial biography. Okay. Uh, so, what drew you to the story of um, the subject of John Kennedy Toole and a Confederate Dunces? Because it really is about both of them in conjunction. With right. Other. Yeah. Well, I had uh, I've always loved to go down to New Orleans, <clears throat> but after Hurricane Katrina, I started going down frequently to volunteer, and then I decided um, to teach a college course on New Orleans culture and history, and of course put Confederacy of Dunces on the syllabus, and decided you know I had to do some more digging about the author, and uh, it became clear at that point once I started preparing for the course that there really wasn't a quality biography um, on the author, and it was such an interesting story, unique story of publishing. And there was one memoir that I read. Um, the title was Ken and Thelma, and it was by Joel Fletcher, and he was friends with John Kennedy Toole. And in that uh, fairly short book, a beautifully written book, he said that there really was no uh, proper biography, and he was hoping for a biographer to come along. And I flipped over the back cover and uh, saw that he lived really only about an hour away from me, and so I uh, in Virginia, and he. He uh, returned my calls, and uh, we began an email discussion, and and that's how it it kind of all um, started from that point. Wow. Um, Did you find any other sources particularly helpful? Well, sure. The main source um, is the tool papers at uh, Tulane University, Uh, and this is a collection of... uh, uh, essentially a little archive on Toole's life and uh, his mother's life, uh, things that she had kept and um, then ended up at, at Tulane. Uh, so that was the really in terms of primary documents and things like that. Those are the main sources that I used. The only problem with those is that um, his mother was very selective in what she kept and what she did not keep. And so you're really looking at uh, a version of her son that she wanted you to see. And so to flesh the story out, to make him a more complex individual, I really just 
for each ep- uh, period in his life, I found people that fortunately were still alive and remembered him. Um, and, and, and that's how I got some of the anecdotes that I put in the book that I think gives some detail into the, uh, the character he was and then how his uh, personality developed. And the novel is very much a novel of New Orleans. Can you give us kind of, I know this is asking you a lot, but can you give us a little crash course in New Orleans for those listening who've never been, just kind of how it played out in his work and how important it was to him? Oh, sure. Well, one of the first, uh, I think, really important things for people to understand about New Orleans who have never been uh, is that the city is really a city of um, small, tight-knit neighborhoods uh, that kind of merge and coalesce in in ways that a visitor could never tell where the borders are, really. and, and and for people who you know may have even been once or twice, they probably have images of Bourbon Street and the French Quarter and uh, those those tourist centers. But for someone who grows up in New Orleans, they really understand their city as a kind of patchwork of these neighborhoods. And these neighborhoods have their own kind of unique personalities. Sometimes even different accents. You can hear one accent uh, in the downtown area. But you go uptown, and the people will speak in a completely different way. Uh, and, you know, this was crucial for Tool because he was an observer above everything else. And he realized this at a very young age, this kind of unique uh patchwork of personalities that uh, that colored his city, and they were all living together and um, distinctly, you know, individual, but at the same time, merging and clashing in all kinds of uh, hilarious uh, and, and intense ways at times. And of course, the culmination of this is is Carnival or, or Mardi Gras, uh, and, and and that as a as a kind of metaphor is important. Because that's a time where all these different, um, well, they're crews. I mean, they're different clubs, but they're from different areas of the city. They uh, they come together. Uh, they work very hard together. They put together floats, and then they march through their city, crossing these uh, these barriers. Uh, and that mentality is deeply embedded into uh, the psyche of of New Orleans, New Orleanians, and certainly Tool. And so, what we have in his novel is is something that reflects that model. You have um, a, a collection of eccentric, unique, bizarre characters uh, that are moving about the city, and they're all kind of, you know, they all have their own uh, goals. Um, the main one is Ignatius Riley. Uh, I, I guess the main drama that propels the, the novel is that he has to. Um, find a job. Uh, and, and of course, this is a, a horrible thing for uh, an academic to have to do like Ignatius Riley is. Uh, and But this is a cover-up for his desires to, ha- to do this kind of social revolution. Um, and it's 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 brought into absurd clashes with um, every uh, area of the city. The the very wealthy, um, and all the way to uh, the the poor, um, uh, black, 
individual who's who is um, wants to keep a job, um, so he's not locked up as the policeman has told me he has to do. But he ends up, uh, you know, sort of being the hero uh, in the end. Mm-hmm. It's a very cu- difficult story to to explain. What, what, one of the things it is, uh, it, it's a picaresque. So it, it, it's an ep- it's a, a novel of episodes. And so it kind of just goes from episode to episode, and you're supposed to enjoy it in the moment. Uh, the dialogue between the characters is absolutely hilarious. Uh, and, and so the plot is really secondary to the characters and the way they, they interact with each other. Uh, so can we backtrack a little bit? If you could talk about Tool's childhood in New Orleans a bit and his relationships with his parents. Sure. Um, His parents were born uh, in a neighborhood uh, called the Faubourg Marigny, uh, which is really in the the downtown area. And when they came along, it was a a real working class section of uh, of New Orleans. But but his mother specifically wanted to get out. Um, She always saw herself as a... uh, uh, someone who is refined, and her, mon- her her family at one time did have money, and so before they had their son, uh, they had they they moved to the uptown section, uh, which was a sort of a more of a suburban atmosphere for the time, uh, larger houses, lots of green space, um, and and very affluent people. And I mention that because uh, it's, I think it's important to understand Poole had roots in very much the working class, old New Orleans, but he grew up in an atmosphere that was much more affluent. Now, that doesn't mean that his parents were affluent. Uh, in fact, they weren't. They struggled financially, but it was very important, particularly to his mother, to maintain their place in, in uptown uh, uh, and and so he was really privileged uh, in in a lot of ways. Uh, his father was a car salesman. Uh, sometimes he would do well selling cars, and a lot of times he would not do well selling cars. His mother was uh, a variety of things. She was an elocutionist. She also would plan pageants. And the important thing to take from that, I think, is that she was very much dedicated to the arts, particularly uh, with theater. And so early on, she encouraged her son to participate in theater. Uh, And she was, from the moment he was born, convinced that he was meant for greatness. And so, you know, he grew up with a a great deal of pressure on one hand to uh, meet this expectation. On the other hand, he was very talented. He was very talented at performing and and mimicry and certainly in school uh throughout uh his schooling you know he 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 skipped two grades in elementary school uh, schooling kind of came easy to him um he didn't think it was any fantastic feat to make straight A's mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Uh, you mentioned that at Tulane, he began to express a resentment toward modern America, and in particular, the notion of the, quote, learned pauper, which really plays out in his own life as he kind of creates this balance, or doesn't balance it, but tries to do it, um, of being a, a hybrid of scholar, writer, and teacher, which happens in Tulane and then in Columbia as well. Can you discuss a bit um, about the learned pauper? Sure. <clears throat> I mean, you know, on one hand, he... Um he had a great deal of opportunities, but his mother certainly would never let him forget that money was a struggle. And the ways in which he encountered money at Tulane um, really struck a chord with him. I mean, he was now, he wasn't just with, you know, the high school boys, the local high school boys. He was now with um, uh, sons uh, and daughters that had been sent to Tulane, uh, and uh, and they had lots of expendable money. And so witnessing this, this affluence on a, a kind of peer-to-peer level, uh, I think frustrated him, uh, but on the other hand, I mean, he was also noticing that they they weren't the brightest individuals, and so here he was, uh, a very smart man, uh, young man, and yet he was you know, having to figure out how to. Um, uh, well, he he had a scholarship, so he didn't have to figure out necessarily how to pay for tuition. But he he had to do things like sell hot dogs at the uh, at the football games. And um, one summer, he sold hot tamales uh, in a cart, um, and and these kinds of jobs that you know might uh, be. Um, not worthy of, of of someone of scholarly station, if if you will. And so I, I think this bothered him, uh, and and certainly he latched onto it uh, when he's developing his main character, who of course is a medieval scholar uh, and and very intelligent and and witty, but simply cannot uh, cannot really hold down um, a job. He considers it um, part of the modern world that is just unjust to make someone who's so talented uh, intellectually to actually make them work uh, for for a living. So I think he understood the humor of it, uh, but certainly in his college papers he expresses a, a real frustration of, of society and, and a kind of uh, a kind of upper echelon of society that didn't have to be educated or intellectual in any ways if they could um, you know just uh, just make money off the money that their parents had already made then that was just fine you know and that, that this was a kind of absurdity of of, uh, of modern life mm-hmm. and I'm sure that absurdity was enhanced for him when he got to Columbia and had, was teaching a hunter and running across town while trying to get his master's right oh Oh, absolutely. I think he saw this at every stage in his life. Uh, and I don't think he maintained a, a deep resentment. I don't think he had a chip on his shoulder about it. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, it wasn't until really the end of his life that he was actually making some some pretty good money. Uh, and his parents were always... Uh, you know, for much of his adult life, they were financially dependent on him. So the pressure of money was a very real pressure uh, for him. 
somewhat unrelated, but I was absolutely fascinated by the detail that he essentially recycled pieces of his bachelor's thesis for his master's thesis. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, you're being kind, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was trying. I was trying to be as kind as possible. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I read both of them, and, and it's pretty much word for word yeah. the same the same paper. There are some minor changes, and uh, his advisor at Columbia made some um made some suggestions that that he accepted uh you know but it it does go back to money i mean it's not completely unrelated he had to he got a a woodrow wilson scholarship uh to columbia uh, for his master's degree but the master's uh degree was usually completed in actually three semesters Uh, but the scholarship was only good for two semesters and there was no way that his family could afford, uh, you know, him staying in uh, New York, even for a summer to, to finish things up. So he had to figure out a way uh, to finish. And so I, I, I think, could he have uh, written another thesis? Of course he could have. I don't doubt that. I think it was a matter of time. He had the paper. It's not as if Tulane you know, sent their copy uh, to uh, to Columbia, um, and so so he submitted it, probably thinking, you know, who who would ever know? It does offer some credit to the degree of his uh, undergraduate work as well. Uh, and so his so his undergraduate thesis at Tulane, which was uh, accepted an honors thesis, um, was satisfactory for highest honors at at Columbia. So I think that offers some testimony to the the quality of of the thesis and and the work. Mm -hmm. So after Columbia, he wound up teaching, actually, I think he didn't graduate with a PhD, but he went to Southwestern Louisiana Institute. Right. It's a little. It is a little tricky. So just um, for listeners to get the the chronology, um, he he graduates from Tulane with his undergraduate. Uh, then he gets the Woodrow Wilson scholarship. Goes off to um, Columbia. Gets his master's in in one year. Graduates in the spring of 1959. Then he wants to continue on with his PhD, but he doesn't have money to do it. And he can't get a teaching job with no teaching experience. <laughs> uh, so he's got to go get teaching experience somewhere. And so he goes to Southwestern Louisiana Institute, which was in um, Lafayette, Louisiana. It, it is now the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Um, and he's there for one year and, and, and really gets some some teaching credentials. Of course, while he's there, I mean, this is an incredibly uh, seminal year for him, and I have—I don't think he ever expected it to be. I think he initially came to Lafayette believing that, you know, he'd, he'd teach for a year, he'd get some experience, he'd be back in New York, he'd be able to um, pursue his Ph.D. And, and, uh, and, and, and teach at probably Hunter College. Um, and then uh, you know what he found was really some delightful friends. Uh, he developed a very close relationship with a professor um, and uh, well several professors really uh, but one which is most important to people who know uh, 
Confederacy of Dunces. So he met Bobby Byrne, who was a sort of rotund uh, medieval scholar, and even though they were teaching remedial English, he would make everyone read uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, a kind of obscure text. Uh, and he he had absurd ways of dressing, a mismatched. He had a deerstalker hat and um, a mustache, and and this is really the he was the model for Ignatius Riley. And so he had uh, really a full year of just observing Bobby Byrne uh, and 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 kind of absorbing all of his different personality traits, and that certainly played out um, in his novel. He also had developed a friendship with uh, a, a, a woman or a family, the, the Rickles family. Patricia Rickles uh, was um, the, the wife and mother of, of the family, and she was a professor and, and actually died in uh, 2009. I was fortunate enough to meet with her and, and speak with her several times. But she absolutely loved him. Um, they never had a uh, romantic relationship, although it's pretty clear that he would have liked to have had a rela- uh, romantic relationship with her. Um, but she was married and very much in love uh, with, with her husband, and they had a, a little boy, and he really enjoyed um, uh, you know, just hanging out with, with uh, little Gordon. In fact, he gave, before he left Lafayette, he gave um, their young son uh, all of his childhood books uh, and, uh, as, as a gift. So, so Lafayette was a really important, uh, important time for him, but he wasn't going to do anything great in Lafayette. And of course, that's what he had to do uh, since he was a young boy. I mean, it, it, he had to do something fantastic, something great with his life. Uh, and at this point, it was, he thought the, the track was going to be, you know, get a PhD and become a professor and get tenure and write books and things like that. But there is this other side of him that we haven't haven't mentioned yet. In his first year at Columbia, he's also experiencing some uh, a, a kind of dissonance with the scholarly pursuit. I mean, it, it, it always risks becoming too dry, too analytical, um, you know, absorbing all the life out of literature and just sort of dry analysis. And so he does write some poems that, that suggest he's questioning uh, whether he's going to, whether he really wants to be a professor or he wants to be uh, in, in, in more creative pursuits, I guess, a fiction writer or a poet. It's ironic then that he winds up in the army, and that's where what breathes life back into his work. Yeah, and sort of a, a, a turn of unexpected irony. He, um, so he goes back to uh, New York, and he's there for a year, and now he doesn't, <clears throat> he doesn't have a uh, scholarship. So he's got to financially make this this work, and so he gets a job at Hunter College. So Columbia is on the the west side of Manhattan, uh, and and Hunter College is on the east side uh, of Manhattan. And you know, in between that is uh, Central Park. And so you can imagine every day, you know, he was taking classes in the morning, then racing uh, on the subway. Uh, over to the east side to teach in the evening, and this is you know this back and forth, back and forth, uh, really started to to wear on him, and he couldn't take a full load of graduate courses because he couldn't afford the the tuition, 
And so in his second semester when he was there, he actually moved closer to Hunter College and he ended up signing up for only one course at Columbia. And that meant he um, he was uh, the potential uh, draft. He couldn't avoid uh, the draft anymore. Uh, and, and so that's how he landed in, in the Army, uh, particularly uh, at the time there was the Berlin uh, crisis going on. Vietnam was just getting started, so it, it's not as if he was drafted and was going to be sent to Vietnam. That that wasn't uh, a risk. But he gets a great, um, a very fortunate um, position teaching English in Puerto Rico. And uh, while he's there, uh, you know, he meets more unique characters. Uh, and um, in his first year, he is uh, he is um, essentially secures the position of a, a kind of manager of the all the instructors. And this means that he gets his own office. And so after a full year of living in barracks, he, he goes into his own office space, and, and, and it kind of just all comes out. I mean, it just really came, came pouring out of him uh, in a couple months. I was really intrigued by um, to see the impact of current events upon his writing, because um, I know he was preoccupied with Marilyn Monroe, who died while he was in Puerto Rico, and then he was writing at a good clip and then stopped upon the assassination of President Kennedy. Um, well, why did that, how did that affect his writing? Right. Well, he, um, you know, he was he was writing along really well in, in Puerto Rico, and in fact was so convinced that the book would be published. Um, you know, he, he almost um, almost in an unprecedented way in terms of his life. I mean, he always had some reservations about his writing, whether it was good enough, particularly his creative writing. And he starts writing home and says, you know, I've, I've got this project and um, the novel's coming along, and I have no doubt that it'll be published. It just needs some editing. Uh, and and then um, you know he makes decision a decision to to come home. Uh, he's not going to go back to Colombia, and he's very clear with his parents. You know, he said as if there was some discussion on what he's going to do with his academic pursuits. He said, "I'm not starting a PhD program. I'm not going to Tulane. I'm not going to law school. I am going to uh, teach English, and um, I'm going to edit the book." And and th- so that's his plan uh, when uh, when he returns to New Orleans. And he was, as you mentioned, he was devastated by the death of Marilyn Monroe. He had a deep fascination with her. And then uh, when shortly after he returned, uh, JFK was assassinated. And there's several reasons why I think he um, identified with, with JFK. Uh, for one, he was... Um, Catholic, and, and certainly they share uh, the name um, John N. and Kennedy, although there was no relationship uh, between them. He was named in, in 1937, and uh, his mother had no idea of, uh, of JFK at that point. So, uh, but I mean, it, while it was, um, you know, uh, I, I think he identified uh, with him. Um, in a lot of ways, um, as, as many people did, but kind of on a personal level. And then to, um, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was in New Orleans just a few miles down the street from where he lived right before he went to Dallas. I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald was a, a New Orleanian. And, and, and this tragedy struck him uh, very hard. 
and he writes and says uh, nothing was funny to him anymore, and he, and he just could not do anything else with with the novel, and so he uh, he sealed it up and sent it off to a New York publisher. With Simon and, Simon and Schuster, right? And he had an extraordinary right. correspondence, really, with an editor there. Yeah, he. Um, it's it, anyone who's trying to get published or has been published. Um, I mean, in the last twenty, thirty, forty years, I guess, <laughs> would would sort of read the way in which Tool carried out his publishing pursuit and uh, just be amazed how far he got. Um, now, this was during the time, you know, this was in the early 60s, so literary agents weren't the standard yet. Uh, there were plenty of agents, uh, but uh, it was possible to send your manuscript to, even to a top publisher and potentially get a response from them. Uh, but who was uh, fairly smart in how he went about. I mean, he, he was an academic, he was a scholar, so he researched who he wanted uh, to to see this, this manuscript, and he selected Robert Gottlieb. Robert Gottlieb was really a rising star in New York publishing at the time. Now he's, you know, just um, a legend in terms of publishing. Uh, but at that time, he had uh, worked for several years with Joseph Heller and Catch-22 um, had, had been released under his, um, under his watch, and Tool loved Catch-22. There was also another uh, novel that was released in the early 60s titled Stern, uh, and it was by Bruce J. Friedman, who's another wonderfully funny American writer. Um, it hasn't quite got the stature that, that Joseph Heller has has achieved, I guess, but uh, Tool loved both of these novels and said, you know, any editor that, um, you know, brought those works to publication uh, will like this. And he was right on. I mean, he had never spoken to Gottlieb or anything. He just, um, he sent the manuscript. It landed on uh, the desk of Gottlieb's assistant, her name was Anne Jolette, and Anne Jolette uh, was from the South, uh, and I believe she had been to New Orleans. I'm not certain on that, but uh, she first read it, and then she brought it to Gottlieb and said, you know, you have to take a look at this seriously. And Gottlieb thought it was wonderfully funny, and they actually have a two-year exchange of, of letters uh, where they're talking about changes and, and edits. Now, what's remarkable about that is that, you know, in today's publishing, I mean, you're, you're lucky if you get uh, a paragraph from an editor back, I mean, uh, let alone an agent. I mean, it, you, it's just so difficult to get that much response. Um, and so without an agent, he sent it to New York, and he begins a two-year correspondence with one of the greatest editors New York Publishing has ever seen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was during this time that his mental illness surfaced as well, right? Yes, he... And it's, it's a very complex question in terms of his how it began, how it started. I, I do want to preface by saying that uh, his family had a, on both sides, had a history of, of some mental illness. 
his father, uh, uh, you know, had developed a kind of slow trudge towards senility, uh, and by the 60s was pretty much relegated to the back room. Um, so, so that's on on one hand, it seems that he probably had some genetic disposition for um, for some kind of uh, mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also became intensely connected with the book in a way that, um, as one of his friends at the time said, it was almost remarkable the degree to which uh, he became more and more. He defined himself by the book, even though it was just under review at a publisher. He had this deep sense of it needing to be uh, recognized and, and understood by the world. And so the pursuit of editing, uh, which is not an unreasonable pursuit when you're trying to publish something, I think the pursuit of editing was was rendered nearly impossible. He was so attached to it. Um, he had a very difficult time changing it in in any way. Uh, and, and and so I think that is an indicator of 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 some disturbance uh, as he sort of descended and, and, and wrapped himself in in the novel. And then, um, some friends also noticed that he was um, clearly going through some delusional episodes, um, some uh, clear paranoia, uh, and 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 really this started uh, in 1967. It becomes very clear, uh, and by 1968, he's uh, seeing a doctor for some very painful headaches. Um, and, and and has some some pretty alarming behavior, never uh, never threatening anyone, uh, but 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 maybe hallucinating, believing people are chasing after him, things like that. Mm-hmm. Know that somehow in popular culture, he's he's often been cast as an alcoholic, gay, and closeted, which really wasn't the case at all. And I'm not quite sure where did that come from. And you really do a lot to debunk that in your book. Yeah, um, I, you know, some people have, um, in some of the reviews and responses I've heard, I, I, they've, I guess my aim in debunking it was not to prove that he was straight uh, and, um, you know, never touched alcohol or anything like that. Uh, my questioning, um, some of this, uh, was, well, how do we know that he was an alcoholic. Um, how do we know that he was a uh, homosexual? Where this comes from, as far as I could see, could tell, one of the earliest episodes was actually from Hollywood's response uh, to the book. <clears throat> there was a great deal of interest um, in not only Confederacy of Dunces, but as the film rights uh, were sold, uh, there were some producers at the time uh, positioning to maybe do a biopic of of Tool. Uh, and <laughs> excuse me, Joel Fletcher, the friend uh, who who wrote the memoir that I mentioned at the beginning of our interview, uh, he met with uh, a producer on two occasions, and and that producer seemed to be um, just dead set on getting Joel to admit that. Ken was gay, and that he was, you know, hanging out in uh, dark, seedy bars in in the French Quarter. Uh, 
And so that was the earliest uh, point that I, so this would be in the 80s. Uh, and I mean, you can imagine from a, a producer, a movie maker in the 80s, that would certainly be sensational. And in a lot of ways, it'd be an easy answer, you know, for for why he um, ended things the way he did, you know, a, a repressed homosexuality that he couldn't uh, resolve, and, and so he destroyed himself. Um, and then this all became real solidified in uh, the first biography. It was titled Ignatius Rising. And um, the authors of that book, as they admit in their introduction, they wanted to write a book on the making of the film Confederacy of Dunces, but when that fell through, they decided to write a biography. Uh, and they take some, some pretty um, grand steps to analyze him uh, as, as, a, as a closeted homosexual and alcoholic. So in my pursuit, I mean, I, I was asking, where do we know? I mean, are there any indicators anywhere of, of either of these behaviors? And the resounding answer is no. I mean, there is just, there is no, I found no stories where he uh, was coming into uh, class drunk or disheveled or, or anything to indicate that his, um, he was being influenced by excessive amounts of, of alcohol. He drank, he certainly did, there's no doubt about that. But I mean, any any may have he certainly got drunk. Uh, I, I have no doubt. Um, but there's no indication of it being an addiction. Uh, and and the question of sexuality, um, you know, I don't know if he was gay. I don't know if he was he was straight. He really kept his relationships to himself. I mean, I can tell you that uh, uh, he had some. Um, intense feelings towards Patricia Rickles. Uh, reportedly, he had been in, uh, or he had wanted to propose to a high school sweetheart of his, um, but for some reason that um, didn't work out. Uh, did he experiment? Maybe, but there's nothing, there's nothing to indicate. There was no love letter. There was uh, no, uh, even, I mean, I didn't he even hear any credible anecdotes of um, experimenting. And, and you know, I, I should mention, too, that many of his friends that I was interviewing um, were, are gay, uh, which is certainly not unusual in New Orleans by any means. Uh, but even they came back and said, look, you know, I think my... I think I'd be sensitive to this. I mean, I think I would know. Uh, and, and, and they came back resoundingly and said, um, there's nothing to indicate that, that he was gay, at least the tool that I knew. Uh, but, you know, I'd also ask, and I, I mentioned this in the book, I mean, what does it matter? I mean, it only matters if you want to somehow analyze his novel through the lens of repressed homosexuality. And, if you want to do that, or even just, uh, you know, even just homosexuality, not even repressed, uh, if you want to do that, then you need some grounds to do it. Uh, and, you know, I just think that that's unfair. Um, I think it's unfair to, to use that as a tool to, or a lens to analyze his novel, but sort of overlook the fact that there isn't anything in his life to indicate that, that he was, and he certainly isn't here to to clarify his sexual preferences. Right. 
So that's that. That was my aim. my aim was to say, you know, we really don't know. It doesn't matter to me if he was or he wasn't, uh, and it and it's not fair to suggest that he was since we don't know. I mean, it's it's it, it, it's just wrong in uh, in my uh, in my estimation. No, it was really interesting to read as a fellow biographer because I think a lot of biographers would take the easy way out and say, "Oh yeah, he definitely was," even if there wasn't. I mean, if there was some sort of anecdote that might kind of imply it in a shady way, but not explicitly. So it was really interesting to read how you handled the situation. I thought you did a really excellent well, job. Uh, thank you. Well, you know, it, it, this. Um, I should mention that um, at near the beginning of writing this book, we also uh, I, I met with a documentary filmmaker um, named Joe Sanford, and he was doing a, a documentary on Tool. And um, in fact, he brought me on as, as a producer. Um, and it, it, our conversations ran weekly for hours, uh, and we were really working hard to decipher, um, you know, with with a real sense of, of the responsibility of what it means to tell someone's life story, especially if they're not alive. Uh, you know, what kind of responsibility you're taking on, uh, and, and you can't be overly sympathetic to every single moment of their lives. You know, I mean, you have to be critical, but at the same time, you know, you have to be sensitive to um, what you can really say. I mean, look, if he was an alcoholic and a closeted homosexual, it, it would be an easy answer. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's sensational, I guess. Um, but I do think in a lot of ways, particularly the question of sexuality, speaks to what maybe as a society at this point we're looking for more so than really what what's there at least what evidence is there uh i have seen it time and time again um when i've done talks and this issue comes up uh, a kind of indignation at my argument that somehow I'm stealing tool away from um, a, a, a group that had owned him somehow. You know, he was, or maybe in some ways he is theirs. You know, another example of how, uh, you know, a homophobic society destroys people. And I'm not saying that that didn't happen, um, but I think you have to be clear-eyed in saying, well, what's driving you to say this about this person who's not here anymore? Uh, if it is driven by uh, evidence, even anecdotal evidence that can be um, you know, verified, then that's one thing. But if it's really driven by a desire to you know, explain uh, a tragic end uh, with a value that that maybe we're trying to negotiate here, then that's not fair. You know, I'm not a politician; I'm a biographer. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I come I come at it from a different angle. So. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. This has been really excellent, and it should be an indication to readers we've only discussed the first half of the book. We didn't even hit upon Thelma and publication and Walker Percy, so they obviously need to read it because there's so much more interesting stuff in there. Um, but yeah. thank you so much for talking with us today about Butterfly and the Typewriter. Any idea what you'll be writing next? 
You know, I've got a few uh, projects. I've been doing some research on the writer James Purdy, um, and an article uh, appeared in Vice Magazine. Um, and so he, he has my interest at the moment. But I tell you, I've also been captivated by another friend of Tool's, uh, New Orleans artist named Angela Gregory, uh, who lived a very fascinating uh, and long life um, and, and, and has yet to really um, have her full story told. So some things are up in the air, I guess. I've been talking today with Corey McLaughlin about Butterfly and the Typewriter, the short tragic life of John Kennedy Toole, and the remarkable story of a confederacy of dunces, which is now out in hardback. I'm Olaine Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.